Hello and welcome to episode 100 of the Beginner's Mind podcast. 100, it's today. And I can't believe that we, I as the podcast host and you as the listener, have made it this far. I'm so grateful to have you with me on this journey. When I first started this podcast, I set a goal for myself to reach 100 published episodes and today is the big day. Back then in 2020, little did I know the impact the podcast would have on me and you as the listeners. Back then, the pandemic presented its own set of challenges and I found myself searching for ways to support my community in staying relevant during the lockdowns. That's when I discovered the power of podcasting and newsletter as a way to bring people together and combat feelings of isolation. Over the past few years, I have learned made mistakes, tried new things, and constantly evolved my show. I'm grateful to every single speaker who has been part of this journey, and especially to those who have helped with donations and sponsorships to increase the budget for the show. A special thanks to the listeners for clicking, downloading, commenting, sharing, and spending time with the podcast. In the end, the audience defines every successful show and I'm happy and grateful to have created something that benefits you, the listener. The statistics show that across all channels, the show serves over 9,000 listeners globally with the majority residing in Europe, 40% in North America and 10% in the rest of the world. I am also excited to share that thanks to partnerships with podcastnotes.org and labiotech.eu, the reach of my show has expanded to over 70,000 thought leaders globally. As I continue to grow and improve my show, I want to thank my listeners for their support. Your downloads, your likes, your comments, your shares and your follows are crucial in helping me reach a wider audience. I'm committed to promoting scientific entrepreneurship and investing and helping to shape a bright future for humanity as long as I have funding and as long as my listeners show me that my show serves a purpose. To celebrate this occasion, I'm excited to share the five most downloaded episodes from the past three years. Thank you for being a part of this journey with me. Here is number five, Sasha Bucher from 4051 Ventures. He was in episode 34, uh, which aired February 11, 2021. Are you an entrepreneur trying to navigate the confusing world of investment? Do you wish you had a guide to help you understand how the licensing market works? Then look no further because Sasha Bucher provides the answers. In this episode of my show, I sat down with Sasha Bucher. He's a venture capital expert with over a decade of experience in deal structuring with the pharmaceutical industry. 
With a career at top venture funds and companies like Royven Sciences, Roche, and UPS, Sasha has completed transactions worth billions of dollars. And now he and his team at 4051 Ventures are on a mission to close the life science value of death in Central Europe and provide life science entrepreneurs with the resources they need to succeed. But the road to success in the drug development industry is not an easy one. It requires deep research, the ability to translate scientific findings into products, and the know-how to bring those products ultimately to the market. And with deal structuring being a B2B business, entrepreneurs must also learn how to negotiate with the pharmaceutical industry and secure multi-billion dollar contracts. In this conversation, Sasha shares his insider knowledge on how to build relationships with business development, R&T, and C-suit executives in the industry and become a trusted partner. Don't miss this chance to gain valuable insights into the daily life of a venture capitalist and learn how to succeed in the competitive world of drug development. To concretely answer your question, you know, what, what do you bring to the table? I think um, it is um, the know-how, how to build a company. Uh, many of the things I, I, I talked about, uh, ideally, you have people that have worked in the industry, developed compounds themselves, know which are the, um, the clinical development plans that you should go for, the indications, um, putting the, the, the teams together, bringing in talent, bringing in fresh talent, diverse talent that have um, insights from having done deals before. Um, and um, something interesting that, you know, talking about Europe that one still often sees is sort of hedging a little bit for the downside. Um, if you look at the amount of science or the, not, not the amount, the quality of science in Europe, it's, it's outstanding. But oftentimes there's still this fear of what if I fail? If I actually do this experiment, I might not be successful um, so I think that is, you know, this know-how of building, growing companies, and I think also to bring that ambition um, uh, to, to the table. I think that is something that that venture capitals uh, should do, and 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 that will help uh, entrepreneurs tremendously. And the other thing is understanding the the, the pharma industry. You have your future partners and acquirers, uh, where they sit and how they work, and and. Um, how you create a, a product champion, and how you uh, do the uh, you know do the marketing phase, and and and, uh, and the things that uh, you in preparation to become a successful company. I think it's those, uh, particularly on those two ends, that it is um, where uh, a venture capital investor can bring a lot to the table for for early startups. Cool. And what about the other side of the table? So there are still people out there that sort of believe that entrepreneurship will make you rich fast and that basically anyone can do it. But speaking more generally from your experience there, what expectations should life science entrepreneurs have and what should they be aware about? Yes, I, I think it's, a, it's a, you know, about entrepreneurship is um, it, it, uh, it's a high risk, high reward. It's a it's a it's a tall order. Uh, you have to be prepared, um, like myself, to to or you know many others and entrepreneurs in the industry to to leave a, a sometimes comfortable or nice job in the industry 
and uh, you have to have a lot of passion and um, the necessary grit, but also expectations that um, you know you can achieve many many things. But it's it's a it's a long journey, and it's um, it's not a linear one. <laughs> it'll, it'll, uh, things will always pan out differently than, than than you plan for. So I think a lot of risk tolerance um, and 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 passion is, I think, what, what people need to bring to the table and, uh, and expect. Right. So you mentioned there that you actually sort of left a comfortable job there to uh, go and found 4051 Ventures. Can you tell us a little bit more about what it is that you're doing there, what you're planning to do, and what will actually differentiate you? Yes, I'm happy, happy to talk about this. Um, yes, it, it goes a little bit in the same vein that I, that I spoke about. The, I, I see a tremendous opportunity in Central Western Europe. So, you know, this includes Austria, Germany, Switzerland, Northern Italy, and the east of east of France. That part of, of Europe is, um, I think, has a top-notch leading science and talent pool that I think still is not exploited or fully exploited or enough exploited and provides particularly chances for uh, uh, early stage investors so uh, we're, we're in the process of setting up um, such a venture fund to uh, do seed financing and uh, also lead series a's uh, as i said seed and uh, series a leads in that region is what we see too little of um, and it's a it's a region where while all the, the partners and founders who lived in that and those we lived actually in the US and the Asias, but we, we have roots in that area. And it also probably speaks to the fact that um, yeah, you need to you need to know sometimes how to go about things. Europe is, is sometimes from the outside complex, but again, there's a fantastic potential, I believe, or, or we believe, and uh, that's what we are there to uh, uh, to, to work on. Um, targeting a close um, mid this year we just spoke about it that uh, vc is just more than just money and you should actually bring also other things to the table so what is your track record uh, or the track record of your team and what makes you actually different from any existing vcs yeah i think we bring a lot of uh, to the table uh, with regards to development transaction experience across the industry over over decades uh, more importantly, I think we built numerous companies and transacted IPOs or transacted them through M&A or licensing. Um, and importantly, we also have within our partners the um, uh, track record of having actually brought dozens of compounds into the, into the clinic, including three approved products, which is something that for the long term we believe is very essential and, 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 a, and a differentiating factor. Um, when particularly investing uh, uh, very early in companies. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today.
Sasha, that's very, very interesting, uh, especially your track record, what you're doing. Um, I think, and also the points that you mentioned about uh, the pristine ecosystem we already have on the science side in Central Europe, especially, and in Europe. And I was uh, smiling when I mentioned uh, Europe might look complex from the outside, but when you're an insider, uh, it looks much different. In my opinion, one of the important parts for every ecosystems are successes in the industry, especially when it comes to acquisition. And last year, yeah, it was last year, we have now 2021 and uh, it was 2020, Demis was acquired by MSD, which I think gives a huge push to the ecosystem in Austria. Um, are you aware of other deals in our area? Yes, I have actually been uh, been, been um, uh, privileged to work with uh, the, the Roche team uh, when I was deputy head at uh, M&A at Roche, together with Andreas Hohn and the partnering team at Roche, on the acquisition of a company called Totalis. Um, they were in uh, Vienna, actually had office in the uh, Vienna University. Um, that was a company that had a um, bifunctional um, monoclonal antibody platform, uh, world-class, outstanding, uh, was a pretty sizable transaction for was still early stage the company uh, I believe had like 135 130 million up front 500 million in, in total including milestones and that was a, a fantastic I think it was a very good transaction for for the founders who, who, who built this and it was very well uh, deserved and likewise uh, for Roche it was a very good addition to their um, monoclonal antibody product portfolio at the time. Um, and, and I think there are other examples as well. I think um, there, there is uh, clearly uh, top-notch science. I am thinking also about the IMP Institute, which uh, is interesting in, in, in the times of COVID, people talk about how collaborative the industry is which, is, which is true and which I think is fantastic. But this is an example uh, the IMP uh, by Institute. People probably know this in, in, in Austria, um, but this is it goes actually back to the 80s and been a collaboration between Genentech and, and Böhringer Ingelheim. And, and still today, uh, actually, one of our partners worked at, at this uh, the IMP Institute. So, uh, a fantastic example how um, you can actually generate and, and work together on, on, on leading science. So, uh, there are definitely examples. I completely agree to that. Central Europe is an amazing area. We have Switzerland uh, with a huge pharma industry. We have Bavaria. We have Austria, also Czech Republic, for example, with the IOCP, who produced some blockbusters for Gilead in the United States. So on the science and entrepreneur side, there are many people here. Sasha, we have some questions from the audience, and I would like to hand the microphone to the first question. Uh, it's from Petronella. Hi, Petronella. Here is number four, Anna Trubovic. She was speaker in episode number 37, which aired on March 7, 2021. In this must-listen podcast episode, I explore the cutting-edge use of blockchain technology in the energy sector with Anna Trubovic. She's the co-founder and CEO of Grid Singularity and vice chair of the Energy Web Foundation. 
With a wealth of experience in entrepreneurship and innovation, including startup life in the Tech Hub of Berlin, Anna offers valuable insights into the ways in which blockchain is revolutionizing the energy industry beyond its well-known utility as a payments system. But Anna's expertise doesn't stop there. She serves on the UN ECE Carbon Neutrality and Stina Set Hub Advisory Boards and as an independent board member at organizations such as the European Institute for Innovation and Technology, AXA and the Belgrade Philharmonic. She's also a professor of entrepreneurship at FEFA, a leading business school in Belgrade, Serbia, where she served as dean from 2012 to 2015. Anna's diverse background also includes consulting on good governance, competitiveness and innovation policy for international organizations such as the European Union and the World Bank. Don't miss this opportunity to learn from a true thought leader in the fields of blockchain and energy. Uh, it is also to uh, Berlin's or even, you know, entire Germany's credit that you can easily uh, get work permits for uh, employees who are not from the European Union, which again is not the case in many other EU member states or Switzerland, where it's rather difficult. So, so that together, I think, has made Berlin uh, really uh, the best place for us to to set up in. Uh, naturally, now and even before uh, COVID, uh, remote work was also possible. Uh, but uh, the sense of camaraderie, uh, you know, going out for lunch together, which is a wonderful German custom, I, I certainly believe has contributed to our productivity level. No, there must there must be something in Berlin because uh, when we are talking about blockchain technology, uh, Tesla is coming to Berlin as well. As I read in the newspapers, it's and already it's already there. It's, it's already, already there. And uh, Elon Musk is also very much into the blockchain technology when I follow his, uh, when I read his Twitter feed. Maybe we have in uh, one or two years uh, a tweet from Elon Musk about grid singularity. That would be a thing. <laughs> well, uh, it would be a natural fit mm. uh, because uh, they are thinking ahead. Mm. Uh, so they have already created, uh, they have enabled their cars to participate in energy markets uh, by okay. developing the auto bidder software. Therefore, uh, if if um, if there is a, uh, an energy community that um, that implements uh, a local electricity market with with peer to peer and uh, community uh, trading, those vehicles can trade as well. Uh, and and they're ready for that moment. So uh, once we go from MVP to commercial, mm -hmm. uh, they will easily integrate. And I believe that other EV manufacturer manufacturers will follow the same path. Uh, we um, have uh, we are promoting this development, and um, all of these energy assets, you know, and, and a car is an energy asset. Uh, in the future will come with their own trading strategies. Um, and there are companies, other startups that we collaborate with that are uh, aiming to optimize such uh, strategies uh, to make the trading smarter 
mm. for your solar panel or or your car or another asset. Um, and uh, there will be a market for that in the future as well, where either you will build your asset with a trading strategy that you develop or you will buy one on the market and add uh, to your asset so that your, your asset is smarter uh, when trading. Uh, this is uh, not even distant uh, future, uh, depending on how EU member states implement the energy community directives. Uh, it, it may actually come much uh, faster than we think. The important is is to put the infrastructure together mm. uh, and to optimize. And, and you optimize by supporting business models like uh, trading strategy algorithm, uh, producers, uh, by improving infrastructure interoperability uh, with decentralized energy asset registries, um, it is a number of companies and, and new business models that will come to play uh, in this uh, new energy market. That's very interesting. I mean, what you mentioned, uh, the car as an asset. So I think you also have to change the perspective I have uh, of a car. Uh, up to now, it was car is, from, a car is for mobility. So it uh, stands in the garage. But I think the role after what you said and also what Elon Musk writes, uh, the car is a completely new thing. It's a device with uh, many possibilities to use it for, not only for the mobility. This is this is quite interesting. Yeah, you could be you could be earning money with your car and returning some of the initial investment as a result. Uh, certainly, this would be a great thing. <laughs> well, we are already in the age of dematerialization, so it's basically where we're heading with cars as well in the end. But. Anna, you mentioned there also that um, uh, would, uh, you really appreciate it also about uh, Berlin is that it's an international place with uh, you know a diverse set of people. So how much does diversity play a role in innovative businesses? Uh, I'm convinced that it is a uh, critical component of success and um, not only by the studies uh, that are readily available on the topic, uh, but also by our practical experience. Uh, our team is diverse uh, in so many ways. Uh, we're trying to reach full gender parity. We have almost as many nationalities as uh, colleagues on the team, uh, different faiths, colors, um, very different aspects, age. Um, and uh, it has certainly raised our productivity level. It has uh, solidified uh, the values that we hold as a company and uh, contributed to our team culture. And uh, I often hear remarks from colleagues how much they appreciate uh, the diversity on the team and enjoy working in such a team. I am um, very much enjoying working with our current team and feel very fortunate uh, to be able to work uh, with such talented, uh, interesting um, people who also have a, a strong sense of personal integrity and who want to work together to, to achieve impact. Uh, because what we do in the end is, is very disruptive. Uh, because even though the market is such uh, that it is very logical that you would think that it should be a bottom-up design and that it should be driven by 
individuals and that you should optimize uh, your renewable assets, um, it is still the old market design and practice where this distributed reality becomes a challenge to management rather than a solution. And we would like to turn it into a, a solution. Great. I mean, also from your insights, from having worked at the EIT, um, where do you see opportunities where how we can increase diversity in Europe? Because, for example, what I really liked about um, uh, the place that I studied in Oxford, uh, the entrepreneurship center there, the Oxford Foundry, has sort of a uh, diversity pledge that says that uh, both startups and investors that want to actually come on board in this facility need to be guided by the values of diversity. And I think it's very good that they actually also include investors there and not just uh, look at startups. So what is your impression? How, how can we actually improve diversity across European countries? Um, it, it's not that difficult, actually. And there are many organizations that have already uh, created a number of proposals. Uh, there are um, VCs, for example, like in the Netherlands, that have pledged that they will not invest in a startup unless they have at least one woman co-founder. And, and this has uh, uh, led to an increase of diversity in startups there, for example. Uh, there are... Um, um, you know, you can um, you can be uh, very conscious of of the benefits of diversity in your HR uh, at uh, the executive and board level, uh, because role models are also uh, important. And uh, we're seeing also changes in in, in education, uh, which contributes from from early age. Um, and uh, encouragement uh, and mentorship uh, and a path, a career path uh, where you support uh, colleagues um, to to advance um, and um, and to then also contribute to to your productivity and your values um, as a firm or or as an organization and. Um, I was surprised to see that um, the diversity was not very high uh, when I moved to Germany, uh, especially in the energy industry and in the finance industry. Um, and uh, it is changing very slowly. Uh, and um, it's not only um, the gender issue, but also the fact that you have a number of people who have never worked anywhere else. Um, and um, if you do not have diversity in terms of backgrounds uh, in many different ways, um, you will not uh, innovate or be as agile as as you as you need to be. And the world is getting to be more competitive. Uh, the energy industry is getting to be more competitive, and it now needs to learn uh, from others. Um, and and move in that direction. So in that sense, um, startups can be an example uh, to, to bigger companies, um, though not all are like that. And, and there are a number of startups in Berlin uh, that have little diversity in terms of gender, especially. And uh, it is this um, wrong premise uh, that you're not able to recruit 
and and that that attitude also needs to change. And uh, but over time, I have seen um, uh, company founders understand its value and pay more attention. So uh, you know there is progress, but but it is uh, slow. And uh, it is only recently that that the benefits uh, are as acknowledged um, at the EIT, which is a European Union body that supports uh, uh, collaboration among uh, researchers, businesses, um, uh, startups in you know in in in, in education in Europe um, by supporting programs, educational programs, um, startup acceleration. Uh, has uh, taken this dimension very seriously. Uh, I'm also a member of the Digital Europe Leaders of the World Economic Forum, uh, where we have also discussed this. Um, so uh, leading corporations are, are taking this to be no longer uh, what was generally viewed a social issue, but an important economic uh, benefit uh, that should be uh, taken in the management. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Coaching Conversation 2024. This podcast is 100% dedicated to leadership and leadership within the workplace coaching area. We work with companies throughout the world teaching leaders how to coach their employees. This podcast is dedicated to teaching specific strategies, frameworks, coaching models, and now artificial intelligent strategies to help leaders drive greater teamwork, collaboration, cooperation, greater attitudes, better motivation, coaching career development, just to name a few. I hope you'll check out our podcast. And here we are already halfway through. It's uh, the third most downloaded episode. Jonathan Sporn, he's the CEO of Gilgamesh Pharmaceutical. He was part of episode 79, which went live on June 28, 2022. As the world grapples with the global mental health crisis affecting approximately 1 billion people, as the world grapples with the global mental health crisis affecting approximately 1 billion people, some experts believe this number is a gross underestimate. In this must listen podcast episode, Dr. Jonathan Sporn, CEO of Gilgamesh Pharmaceutical, discusses the unmet medical need in mental health and the potential of novel psychedelic drug development to address this need. Dr. Sporn, a board-certified psychiatrist and assistant professor at Columbia University, shares his extensive knowledge on the history of psychedelic drug development key players in the field and the essential components of building a successful drug development company. He also discusses the effectiveness of psychedelic drugs in treating mental health issues, the role of artificial intelligence in the field and the investment sentiment in the United States for developing novel innovations. As society seeks solutions for the mental health crisis, the potential for psychedelic drugs to help alleviate the mental burden on society is a topic of great interest. Don't miss this opportunity to learn from an expert in the field and gain valuable insights on the promising potential of psychedelic drug development. 
yeah so 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 uh so i think that's another example where you know they they decided we were developing esketamine and that's the answer and 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 they surprisingly left on the table what we think is the better mm. isomer compound to develop for psychiatry esketamine is better for anesthesia i think uh where it's used and around the world uh, but our ketamine looks like it's the better drug for psychiatry because that different that stereochemistry creates different physical chemical properties, you know, because drugs are binding in receptors that have three dimensional, uh, you know, uh, uh, configurations. So, um, so, so, so that's another example where you know the the, the, the there's a problem of in terms of innovation. Um, at these big organizations. And so, so I, I left there and went to Pfizer and, you know, but along the way, then you learn how to run big projects and you learn how to, you know, you learn a tremendous amount from the, these organizations are very, you know, resource rich. Um, and so, um, so I, I, I left Jane Jay, my wife got a job at uh, professorship at Columbia. So I left there, left uh, Jane Jay moved to Pfizer, but uh, it, eventually it was the same sort of story where you know Pfizer also you know was very bureaucratic and very political and uh, um, and um, uh, and uh, you know was spending a tremendous amount of money um, and uh, getting I don't I didn't think a whole lot out of their research efforts at least in psychiatry um, and. Um, and they figured that out finally and decided to leave. Peter, one more question from my end. Uh, you mentioned yeah, yeah. Pfizer. In these days, Pfizer did uh, still uh, allocate large budgets to early stage research. I always, I mean, when I now look on the pharma industry, it looks to me that uh, all these big corporations focus more on marketing drugs and uh, getting the regulatory approval processes done and do the large uh, scale phase three trials but not the earlier stages. But in these days, uh, Pfizer was also, and J&J &J were also involved in early stage research. Yeah, no, I mean, I think they're always doing early stage research at all these big companies, but they, they, they oftentimes, I think, don't end up being uh, the, the best at, at doing that early stage research. And I think- what? That, What, what's, what's your opinion? Why, why is that? Why is early stage research better in small companies than big corporations? I, um, I think it's the, I mean, I think if you, you study the culture of a biotech and then study the culture of a big uh, pharmaceutical company, um, there's a... Um, a passion and a focus and an energy and a um, scrappiness and a, uh, a being able to make decisions. You know, at, at Pfizer, all decisions were political and took forever, you know, and at a biotech, the decision is made because somebody calls me, you know, mm -hmm. and that's it. You know, so the, 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 you know, uh, and, and, and of course most biotechs will fail. Uh, but there'll be enough of them to succeed. And when they do, you know, they, they tend to often be, uh, you know, um, quite. So, so it's not entirely the case. I mean, there have been plenty of drugs, of course, being de developed by big companies, but it's often this cultural issue. So if you look at like when the statins first got developed, you know, Merck um, 
uh, 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 developed the first uh, statin. And but at the time, uh, you know, uh, uh, Roy Vagelos could come from from St. Louis, and it, you know, Merck was up was you know, not doing all that well. And, you know, he kind of pulled up some dejected chemists from the basement and started drawing things on the blackboards and, and had a, a vision, you know, and a passion for like, this is how we're going to create the next drug f- for cardiovascular disorders. And, and the science had was ripe for that. And he, had, you know, so he brought that excitement and vision and, 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 you know, to, to Merck, um, and um, and that, but of course, in the end, Pfizer, you know, then marketed Lipitor, which became even a bigger drug. Um, so um, the, the the first horse uh, it doesn't always uh, win, you know. That starts the first horse out of the gate doesn't win the race necessarily. But uh, uh, but uh, uh, but 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 I think again, that sort of even that in that case where Merck was a big company, it was that Vagilos coming and creating that excitement and energy and you know kind of new blood new new vision and blood and sort of leadership you know the kind of and, and that that's it and, and you know big companies it just tends to become sort of mechanical and somewhat bureaucratic and you're always sort of fighting up against the commercial people and the you know uh and the, you know they have strategies that they develop that you know only allows you to do this and this even though you kind of aware, like it'd be better if you didn't do that, but well, but that doesn't, you know, it, it, we don't, we're not interested in anything unless it has nine zeros after it, you know, the sort of thing where smaller, smaller companies don't think that way. So I I think that's sort of combination of things. I think there is, um, it's like, um, it's like at the army, you need sometimes you need troops and sometimes uh, for some tasks, special forces are just better at smaller groups and yeah. um, they're much quicker. And it's, I think it's the same with small biotechs and large pharma. So some tasks, especially at the early stage development is better allocated in small biotechs and because they're faster decision-making processes, more passion, uh, getting things done, um, moving forward. And when I think, for example, at uh, mRNA vaccines, I mean, it's one of the recent examples um, BioNTech and Pfizer, I mean, once uh, drugs really need to be spun out uh, or pushed at scale to patients, I think the large pharma troops are the best solution for that. I mean, just imagine a small biotech building, then sales forces uh, would next to be impossible. So I think there is a good and good and bad sides in both worlds. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, well, big pharma was, it was in some ways it was great for me because I, you know, first of all, I, I steal all their people and, uh, and also it just really, uh, you know, gave me a background, uh, you know, in, in so many things, it was like a, you know, uh, like a, a, you know, a 10 year training program or something. I mean, you had, you had everything. You had a university background in psychiatry. Then you went to NIH for, for research, doing research, and then uh, the big pharma background. Uh, and then, I mean, from what you were saying, the logical decision then was to found your own company. When did that happen? When did you make the decision the first time that you say, okay, let's, uh, let's uh, start something on my own? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I was the clinical disease uh, area expert in, at Pfizer for you know, neuroscience and, you know, in the psychiatry area. And so I, you know, at, and I could see things kind of going downhill in terms of Pfizer's interest in psychiatry. And uh, they, they, they weren't, they, they really didn't 
you know, put much effort into that. And, um, and, and I, and I realized that they were going to leave neuroscience. So I had to figure out, well, what, what do you want to do next? You know? And, um, and I tend to be a little restless. I don't want to do the same thing and I, I don't want to do something bureaucratic and repetitive. So, um, and, um, and then I went to a meeting of, of the American college of neuropsychopharmacology, the, the ACNP, which is this very elite, organization that has a meeting every year. And I, um, and I heard uh, a talk, uh, talks on the whole, the, you know, this whole glutamatergic ketamine space, which I had sort of been out of, you know, for many years. And I was trying to make sense of the whole thing. And there was a lot of contradictory data and it was unclear what was going on. And then this guy um, named Kenji Hashimoto from Chiba University, mm-hmm. Japan, gave a talk on our ketamine. And, and, and as I listened to this talk, I was like, I, it sort of came to my mind that this may be, he may be right. And, and, it, and, and nobody seems to be quite registering that. And, and I think that's, that's, that, that happens quite a bit too. You know, there's sort of, every, everybody's kind of going down, you know, the orthodox, some orthodox route, you know, and, and, then and, and, and he kind of came with this idea that and and, and and also there wasn't a strong understanding like well, why you know our ketamine's weaker uh is is a uh, has weaker binding to its receptor which is the nmda receptor so why would you pick the weaker isomer if you, you know if you have a choice you know why would that be better that doesn't make any sense but i sort of realized like we don't really the NMDA receptor is very complex and it has variations across the brain and subunit uh, composition. So it, there was a lot we didn't know. And so it was sort of an empiric, my, my empirical sense was like, this may be right. And so I met with them and, um, and I uh, brought my, uh, my, my, my old boss from Pfizer into the picture, Jake Kranzler, who, had a lot of biotech experience, and we sort of negotiated with uh, the university to license our ketamine, and that we decided we would we would develop that as a drug. And you know, we had a little trouble because of the fact that uh, people were like incredulous because they were like, "Well, you can't be right because J and J. If you were right, J and J would have been all over this, you know, because they're like this giant company with all of these, you know." intelligence people and thousands of scientists like how how could it be that they're like you just come along you just as a person and and do this and so people were not they didn't really and jane jay was also very you know very defensive about this because of course if i was right they would they looked not too great uh <laughs> um so uh so there was a lot of internal you know kind of anger at from the Jane J people at our my old NIH colleagues who and 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 what happened was that there was a uh, my old colleagues at NIH uh, Carlos Zarati and company um, and Todd Gould uh, they published a paper in Nature uh, that essentially said that uh, the what's really going on is that there's a metabolite of R ketamine of the R isomer called 2R6R hydroxynorketamine mm. and it's that metabolite that actually is the um the anti what what causes this antidepressant effect and so 
it wasn't clear that they were right, but they replicated this R-ketamine data. But the, but the NIH then said, well, we'll license to a company this metabolite because they had patented it. And so all the companies went scurrying off to try to patent, uh, to sort of to try to license this uh, patented uh, metabolite. And this left R-ketamine and the Japanese like sitting there and nobody was interested. So this, so I was able to write them a check and, um, you know, for, for a very small amount of money, license in the, uh, the, uh, the compound and start to develop the program. Um, and, and so, um, so, so I, uh, so this then. So this, this, did you take it right? This was the uh, foundation basically of perception or neuroscience yeah, in your first right. company. Right. And this was, you know, in perception, you know, Jim Morrison had the doors as from the doors of perception. And I took the, the doors of perception, perception. <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh, we started, yeah. So I started perception and, um, and perception neuroscience, uh, You know, we start and we started to to get the trials planned and preclinical work going, um, and then uh, as we were doing that, uh, you know, we needed to raise money, uh, and a couple of different folks came along, including Christian Engermeyer, uh, who was now enamored with psilocybin and psychedelics and wanted to build like the Bridge Bio or Royvamp kind of model mm -hmm. and things and 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 he was very him and george goldsmith who runs compass they were very intent on doing a deal to uh uh to buy a, a controlling share in in perception uh and so uh so i negotiated a deal with them uh and uh you know so that the you know perception got funded and you know moved forward so that's how that and, and now it's in phase two Uh, development, um, uh, you know, uh, which is, you know, uh, happening in the U.S. And Here we are at uh, the second most downloaded podcast episode. Uh, it is with Heike Schön. She was part of episode 71, which aired on March 28, 2022. Clinical trial failures are too common in the pharmaceutical industry with nearly 90% of product ideas failing in the clinics. While efficacy is often the main reason for failure, other factors can be managed to increase the chances of success. These failures can be costly for sponsors and investors, but taking steps to eliminate manageable sources of failure can save time and expenses. In this podcast episode, Heike Schön, she is the managing director and co-founder of Loomis International and Loomis Consulting, together they form the Loomis Group, shares her expertise on clinical drug development and clinical trials. She has over 25 years of experience in leadership positions in international clinical research and drug development. Heike offers valuable insights into the clinical trial process, regulatory requirements, and strategies for getting a clinical trial back on track. She also discusses the trend towards in-house versus outsourced clinical study management and shares her predictions for the future of clinical trials. Tune into this episode to learn from a leading expert in the field of rescuing clinical trials. 
So, I mean, we have ICHGCP and the revision of R2, which clearly defines the role of the sponsor. And this is the, and you have to comply as a sponsor with the duties. You have to oversee the clinical trial. You have to prove that you oversee the clinical trial. You have to have the finances when you start your clinical trial. You cannot make a full contract, for example, mm -hmm. when you don't have the full amount of money. You can go for part contracts. And um, so you have to uh, make sure that the protocol is in adherence with the disease, with the indication. So there's a lot of roads. The quality management is a big issue. Of course, as a sponsor, you have to ensure that your quality management systems is in place for, uh, for the whole activities around drug development. And I mean, all these activities have to be done. And, and so that means... Um, yeah, why do you have to do this? Of course, to guarantee the safety of the patients, but also to be at any time inspection ready. You might not have an inspection when it comes to first to your first in human study, but at latest at phase two, inspections could come up and they will look really at the details, how you did your oversight, your planning, your vendor selection, how did you validate your vendors, how did you qualify your vendors? I mean, these are all the activities you have to ensure in a proper way. And um, the good thing is FDA and EMA, they publish inspection reports, which is very interesting if you want to learn what to avoid. And uh, and this also these inspection reports, they always lead to changes in regulations, to adapting regulations. It was one of the reasons why ICH was also revised mm -hmm. because um, more and more technology beca uh, um, became important in clinical trials. That means also for a sponsor to ensure that all the vendors providing the technology have validated systems, revalidated systems. And these were findings from inspections, which then led to a change in ICHGCP. And uh, let me ask you one question. Who should feel as a, as a sponsor? So what what uh, organization? <laughs> in the, I mean, um, is it the CRO or is it the the company with the money back that hands over no the CRO is no the CRO is definitely the service provider and it's also defined in GCP the sponsor is the company providing the financing and the organization for the and the compound for the um, clinical trial. Of course, you can also be co-sponsors so that you have two different companies moving forward, but the mm. responsibility is with the sponsor, not with the CRO. They have so, other responsibilities. <laughs> so, so basically you can say there's, there's no time to sit on the beach because a uh, company- Unfortunately they, not. <laughs> they, so any company that raises money and that uh, engages a CRO for conducting a clinical trial and hands over their money back uh, is then automatically the sponsor. And it's within the responsibility of the sponsor that everything runs well in the clinical trial. And when push comes to shove, uh, the regulatory authorities uh, go to the sponsor and not to the CRO. Is that the right understanding that I got? Uh, no, the, the CROs will also be inspected. So when you have an inspection on a clinical study, let's say in a phase three, then uh, they go. the ins inspectors go to the uh, sponsor, to the CRO and to the sites. So they do uh, quite a, a multifaceted inspection to see whether the study is in compliance with the, requir the regulatory requirements and guidelines. No, no, this will be all over. But the sponsor company, not the investor, the investor gives the money, but the sponsor company who defines what the uh, plan will be, what the drug will be, they are the main responsible uh, party. 
So basically, when we talk about, I mean, I think uh, everybody knows BioNTech, meanwhile, after two years in the pandemic and the vaccine development. So basically, the sponsor of the clinical trials was then BioNTech, but yes. uh, not the shareholders of BioNTech. No, not and the shareholders. They are, the shareholders might be the responsible part, not the investors, but the mm. shareholders. So that I think we have to maybe uh, distinguish here. Yeah, but the executives at the end of the day are then responsible that yeah. everything runs fine in the company. And it's similar on the private market. So uh, the investor, the VCs that give the money are not the sponsors, but it's the company in between and the executive boards then has the responsibility for the clinical trial and should be ready to be inspected once they dose the first patient. Mm -hmm. um, this leads me to the next question. What is What is your recommendation for the time that the company should then take to plan a clinical trial properly? Yeah, this is also, again, a backward approach. I mean, there are different um, aspects to it when to start preparing a clinical trial. One key aspect for me is what takes the longest to prepare. That could be the drug, the, the investigational drug. Because sometimes, depending on the ingredients, it could take up to one year that everything can be ready. Uh, you have to get the material from wherever. So I think you have to consider always what takes the longest time to be developed. Because maybe you want to start in 12 months a clinical trial, then and you need, uh, but you need 16 months to prepare your investigational medicine a product. You should start earlier, and from this on, you you can start preparing further on. And I think, and companies do it very different. I have realized sometimes they do on short notice the CRO selection. Others they start already one year before the study starts to really talk with CROs, to get the input from CROs, to get the input from specialists. I think um, I would always allow for much more time to prepare and to discuss in detail the plan of the clinical study with the regulatory authorities. You might go for scientific advice meetings. You might discuss with certain authorities. And uh, so therefore, at a minimum is a one year, but the more, the better. So a minimum is one year uh, that should be taken into consideration also in the planning and yeah. asking for money. And you mentioned before, the clinical trial needs to be financed entirely before filing with the authorities. Um, it should be. It's a recommendation. I mean, of course, it is not always possible. But uh, if you can foresee that you might have an issue with the financing, then mm. uh, and CROs are used to it you can have maybe only a contract covering the study startup because then you can have some, some results in the study startup with the CRO. Because it is also a problem when in the middle of the clinical trial, suddenly you have no budget to continue. <laughs> yeah, so this is not in the interest of patients, mm -hmm. yeah, not of the authorities and definitely not of the sites. So I think um, you should be more careful in, in the financing process uh, when you start your clinical trial, you should have uh, the awareness about um, yeah what is needed throughout, until the end. I couldn't agree more. Having properly financed company and uh, also the resources set up uh, helps then moving forward. Uh, let's jump to the time when the study started. Uh, I very often get the perception that uh, the study oversight is in uh, also an easy cheesy job, even with the. Uh, uh, with the inspections of authorities and sometimes companies say why should I engage outside people I have a lot of assistance in the company they can do the study oversight quite easily uh, besides the other duties because what what do you have to do you have uh, to just collect a few reports and that's it what is uh, your recommendation when it comes to clinical study management uh, in-house versus 
outhouse clinical study management. Uh, what is what really needs to be done in Europe? Well, if you, for example, the CRO is conducting your clinical trial and you have to make oversight management of the different activities. I think it's not really a job of an assistant because you need a specific knowledge. You should have experienced people, medical person or project managers who can conduct the oversight, who are you have the awareness about what can happen in a clinical trial, the perspective, the risk management approach. I mean, this is a classical risk management approach uh, where you consider what can happen and how can you mitigate the risks. And so that means um, even if you have a very good clinical trial assistant, she cannot or he cannot cover all of the activities, only parts of it. And we always recommend a kind of a little rule of thumb, and, and but don't ask me how I derive it. It's um, when you outsource a clinical trial for every six to seven person working in the CRO, you should have one person conducting oversight in your company. Well, well let, let's talk a little bit. For every six to seven? Yeah, let's, let's say five to seven person. For every five, five to seven person in a CRO working in your on your clinical trial, you should have one person in your company performing oversight. So if you go for a phase two clinical study to be easily in three, four different countries. You have at least, let's say, 15 monitors who will work at the CRO to oversee the activities at the sites, 10 to 50 monitors. So that means you have to do some proper oversight management, at least with one to two person in your own company to properly work together with the CRAs to, to, to review their reports, to, to use the dashboard the CRO is providing to look at regular um, reports, meeting minutes. So this is a kind of a relationship. So that means you have always to consider carefully as a company how many people you have with experience who can do the oversight management. And it depends, of course, in the different phases of the study, and it depends on the different timelines of the uh, study. A study startup is much more resource intensive mm -hmm. than later at the end when it comes to statistical analysis and reporting. So can you give a little bit of insight what proper on oversight management should look like in your opinion? So with a little bit more detail. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's um, the oversight, of course, the, what, what is possible depends also on the CRO you are working with. Uh, meanwhile, a lot of CROs provide ex excellent uh, business intelligence mm. so that you can use, you get access as a sponsor to their dashboard. You can have real-time data. You see what is going on. And um, this is one thing. But of course, uh, there are a lot of smaller CROs who might not have this technology, but still have a lot of uh, possibilities that you can have access to the reports. So at least what you need to know is um, as real as possible what is happening in your clinical trial. And then you should always know really what is impacting the the. the the, uh, the clinical trial, the timelines, the costs, um, the safety of the of the clinical trial. So we recommend to have good key performance indicators as an oversight uh, measurement tool. If you have key performance, and you don't need many, I mean, it's let's say seven to 10 key performance indicators, uh, well chosen, uh, what have the highest impact, what has the highest impact on a clinical trial, and these can be measured. These key performance indicators can be uh, developed together with the CRO. They have the systems, the data management system, for example, the study startup system. So you define together with them, you get regular reports on the key performance indicator. 
You don't need to do this by yourself. This is another problem a lot of sponsors have that they do micromanagement on the CROs and they double the work. <laughs> they do a lot of Excel trackers. So I've saw biotech companies where I said, okay, these are companies consisting of Excel trackers. So they track everything, but then they lost oversight <laughs> on all what they tracked. This is not the reason, this is not the sense of oversight. The oversight should really provide you with a clear picture where your clinical trial stands. And also with alerts, if something goes wrong, then you do proper oversight. Yeah, and I also believe it's a lot about uh, relationship management with people. I mean, when I think uh, CROs usually work with more companies, and if I as a sponsor want to have a high priority, it's always good to stay in touch with people and uh, manage the relationship so that uh, they feel that the sponsor is also uh, engaged in the study. I made a, it was not... Um, in the life science industry, it was more in the agriculture industry, but uh, I learned very well back in uh, 2002, three and four, how things change to the better when people are in touch with the person who pays the bills at the end of the day and things move more smoothly and more quickly. Absolutely. And this brings uh, to another point, which is very important. Good that you mentioned the, the relationship. It is the relationship, but it's also the understanding the different cultures. I mean, sometimes we have, I mean, small biotech companies, the smallest one I worked with had three people and everything was outsourced. Yeah. <laughs> but, and they have a culture, of course, the decision-making process is without discussions. It's just done by the CEO. The CRO it's, uh, themselves were a couple of hundred people. Of course, they had a structure, an organigram. They had very complex decision-making processes. And this can really cause a culture clash because uh, yeah, the smaller company was not used to discuss much. And then they suddenly expected decision-making power of people who didn't have any decision-making power. So it's very important for both parties to understand each other's culture and to accept the differences. And to work with the differences. And for small companies, you can always consider that the CRO is much bigger and much more complex in the organization than yourself. And so I think then the relationship building is even more important. And um, to, but to make sure that you understand each other on a very good level. I, I think this is sometimes very challenging because it's not only the culture between uh, the different sizes of the company. So you have this uh, small biotechs with a few people, highly specialized, and then you have the big structures of zeros. Uh, also, trials are very often set up in different countries. And uh, as we are in Europe, uh, every country is proud of their own culture. <laughs> so language. And, and language on top of that. Yeah. And non-native speakers, we always try to do our best in English, but let's face it, we are not native speakers. Yeah. So there is a lot of management that needs to be done. And I think uh, sponsors, any biotech company that raises funds from investors should plan that upfront uh, and tell the investor what they believe is really necessary get done so that the clinical trial is at the end of the day successful. So basically it's not taking a Coke and popcorn and relax and sit down. It's a uh, hard work that needs to be done. Yeah, it is hard work. And it's uh, a lot, this is, yeah, it can be easily underestimated the resources which are needed, the budget, which is needed, and maybe also additional resources you have to add to your company. I have made experience that uh, suddenly you, company starts with a phase two clinical trial having 
um, 35 sites involved in different countries and uh, have they themselves had two people working in the finance department. And suddenly all these, these two people on top should check uh, in, investigator invoices of 35 sites and it was impossible. So, I mean, these are things you have to be also prepared to outsource clinical studies or to run a clinical trial and know what additional resources you might need besides the clinical people, besides the operational people. So it's not only setting up one contract and then the work is done, unfortunately. No, unfortunately not. <laughs> can, we, can we come up? I mean, um, I started writing with the pandemic two years ago and uh, I did a little bit of research in how to structure articles. And what goes always very well is these three-step processes and this mm -hmm. three-step checklist is for sponsors. Uh, can we turn it into a three-step checklist for sponsors to keep studies on track? What needs to be done? What are the three most important steps in your opinion? Well, in my opinion, I think one is what we just talked about is establish a very well uh, uh, yeah, communication tool with the CRO, with the vendors. It can be through a governance charter, but really establish good communication with the CRO and very transparent. Um, what we have experienced and what we always recommend is that a sponsor should be very clear on its expectations. Because it's often say, oh, yeah, this is a nice year. Oh, we give it to them. They're nice people. And they just hand over this uh, the uh, study. But then suddenly things are happening. Nobody talked before about it. And it was obvious that these expectations were not uh, very clearly communicated to the CRO, to the vendor. Then they do what they think is the right thing. <laughs> and this could also be a very different opinion from both sides. So I think clear expectations at the beginning, clear uh, Uh, developed roads and responsibilities would be the second part. And um, the third part is also what we uh, just talked, uh, try to develop a good business intelligence, a dashboard, make sure that you have your KPIs in place and, and work with your KPIs for the study performance. And here we are. It's the most downloaded episode and the winner comes from my country austria he lives in the most livable city vienna he was one of my first podcast guests his episode was episode number nine which aired on april fool's day april 1 2020 in the midst of the pandemic It's really hard to believe that I'm almost done with recording the episode 100. When I started on this journey, I could never have anticipated its impact on my listeners and me. That's why I'm so grateful to bring back Alexander Belkredi. He is the co-founder of Fagomed that later was acquired by the German company BioNTech. Alexander Belkredi discussed with me how entrepreneurs can create unexpected results in business. His episode, recorded in March 2020, got the most downloads so far. Alexander and his co-CEO Lorenzo Corsini started their company in 2015 with the goal of developing alternatives to antibiotics. In April 2020, they were fundraising for their company and just two years later, they signed an acquisition deal with BioNTech. In this episode, Alexander discusses Fagomet's noble approach to treating bacterial infections without antibiotics, their challenges in drug development and the competitive landscape 
in the antibacterial industry. He also provides insights into the clinical development process, the importance of preparing for fundraising and the role of European public funds in leveraging private investments. Tune in to learn more about Fagomet's innovative approach to treating bacterial infections and how he and Lorenzo Corsini achieved such unexpected success in business. Very happy to share a bit of light on that. First of all, so I'm the, the co-CEO, so we're actually two CEOs, so Lorenzo and myself lead the company. Um, what motivated me to get into this? So I've always been very much attracted to the life science field. My mother is a doctor. Um, I've always had a strong interest in everything medical. Um, I didn't really decide to study it. Uh, in retrospect, um, myself, sometimes not sure why, but I, I took more of a business route. Um, I studied the history and economics and then entered uh, a consulting company and a consulting track. And at that point, immediately decided that the field I wanted to be close to is the healthcare field. And so during my time as a consultant, I um, worked for healthcare companies, uh, pharma companies, medical technologies companies. And um, at some point, I uh, stumbled upon the topic of bacteriophages and uh, the antibiotic crisis that we're facing. And um, one thing led to the other. And at the end, um, I felt the need to, to quit my consulting job and start a company in this field. And, and that company is now Fagomet. So you are one of the, the, the founders of, of Fagomet. How did it come to the foundation of the company? So... That was a long time in preparation. So if I remember correctly, the first time that uh, I got into contact with phages was um, around about 2012, 2013. Um, my father-in-law is, is a German surgeon who had been treating patients with phages um, in, in Germany in individual settings, experimental settings, when all antibiotics had failed. And um, he was interested in understanding why we didn't have any phage-based pharmaceuticals that he could use more regularly um, with his patients. And uh, that sort of question and that frustration also on his part um, got me interested into the whole field and led to, to myself asking the question, well, why don't we actually have phage-based pharmaceuticals? And then uh, at some point also attracted uh, my, my co-founder, Lorenzo, uh, to the question as a molecular biologist. And so then the three of us started looking into the phage field. Um, my father-in-law as the surgeon who's used phages, uh, Lorenzo as uh, the molecular biologist, and myself as a sort of a business person. And we decided that we wanted to do something about it. And then in 2017, found the company. So basically, uh, half of the company is family-owned, uh, or two-thirds are family-owned. So it's uh, your father-in-law and, and yourself and uh, then your partner. Uh, which brings together the, the founders team. Uh, what skills uh, do you recommend when you found a company? I think there, there's a ton of different skills that you need. I think if you found a, a life science company, then obviously it's, it's important to have somebody in the founding team who really understands the science. And in our case, that's uh, Lorenzo, who has a very deep knowledge about uh, molecular biology, but also in particular um, phages by now and, and how we can use them. Um, it's also good to have a bit of a, a business skill set. Um, so that's probably the role that, that I play and that I could contribute of having sort of a very um, economics and, and business focused uh, mindset to, to bring to the table. And then it helps to have somebody who understands what you would do with the product. And for that, uh, um, Burkhardt, um, sort of my father and all the surgeon and the team 
uh, was also a great asset because he had used phages and he was able to, from the start, guide us as to where we could maybe do make a difference with the phage-based pharmaceuticals. So I think it's it's the, the combination of different skills that you need. Whether they all need to be in the founder team, I think that's an open question. In in our setting, that was for sure one of the things that, that we felt was an advantage, that we had a, a strong science perspective, a strong business perspective, and a strong medical perspective in the founding team. Oh, I absolutely see that and recommend it to start with, with the skill sets that you mentioned. Uh, you were talking a lot about uh, phages. I am a business person myself and have limited understanding of science. Could you explain a little bit what uh, Fagomet is doing? Sure. So you, I mean, you probably read and you're aware that uh, we are running out of antibiotics um, that work. And uh, the simple reason is that the bacteria are becoming more and more resistant to the antibiotics that, that we've developed. Um, and that's actually a huge challenge because so much of our medicine is built on having antibiotics that protect us from infections. For example, during any type of surgery, you will get antibiotics to make sure that there are no uh, surgical site infections or other type of infections happening. But also in bacterial infections that uh, that we contract by other means, antibiotics obviously stay the standard of care. So it's really scary to think about um, antibiotics no longer working or no longer being there. Now, in nature, bacteria have a, a natural enemy, and these enemies are viruses, viruses called phages, that uh, have co-evolved with bacteria over the past billion of years and have one function, and that's to hunt, infect, and kill bacteria. And so now, what we do at Phagomate is we find ways to take these natural viruses, these phages, and uh, bring them into a drug that we can actually use um, in patients, in situations in which antibiotics fail. That's very, that's very interesting. So basically, you're using viruses to, to fight bacteria, if I understand exactly. it right. Exactly. And then maybe in, 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 in today's time and place, it's very important to mention <laughs> that phages are very particular viruses. So they yeah. only infect bacterial cells. Um, and it's uh, sometimes the word virus has very negative connotations um, mm -hmm. because we, we sort of associate it with the with bad diseases and in the current um, pandemic, I think it's very clear that there are some very harmful viruses out there. It's sometimes important to to note that talking about a virus is a bit like talking about transportation. Uh, a train is a very different animal from a, a bicycle and uh, the same holds with viruses. So phages are viruses, those kinds of viruses that only infect bacterial cells and in that function might actually save our lives. Um, you mentioned antibiotics business. I started myself, my career in life science with Nopriva. It's uh, a listed company, meanwhile, and they are doing research in antibiotics. How do you see the situation, generally speaking, in the world with antibiotics? I mean, we have a lot of companies who are doing research in that field. Uh, why do you believe we are running into a situation with antibiotics? I think there's multiple reasons. I think the first one is there are not enough companies researching new antibacterials. So if you look across the globe, there are very few new registrations of novel type of antibiotics happening. I think actually Nabriva, the company you mentioned, um, is uh, sort of the last company to successfully bring an antibiotic to market in the US. And, and that's one of just a very handful in the past two decades. So it's um, 
we don't have enough companies doing research in the field. We also don't have an attractive economic climate for traditional antibiotics. So we've been extremely successful at driving down the price of antibiotics. Most of them are genericized today. And so it's unclear whether if you're able to bring a novel antibiotic to market, what kind of a price point can you attain and will that be attractive? And as I said, that's particularly a problem for, for small molecular antibiotics. Um, so it's it's a challenging field from multiple perspectives. But I think at the same time, what's clear is we are just as affected by bacterial infections as we were you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. Um, they are a fact of life. Every one of us has them. Many will have serious bacterial infections. We're just running out of the drug that was supposed to keep us safe. Okay, so this is it in a nutshell. We are running out of uh, antibiotics currently, and uh, the field you are doing research in might be a potential solution. How is the competition in your field? I, I always joke that the competition is not big enough yet. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, the reality is phage-based pharmaceuticals are making a very slow comeback. So mm-hmm. we've known about phages for about 100 years um, in the 1920s and 1930s. Actually, many companies sold phage solutions, but back then we didn't really understand phage biology. We didn't properly understand uh, the etiology of many infections. And when small molecule antibiotics, and the first one was penicillin, came along, uh, that wiped out the market of phage pharmaceuticals and for a good reason. Now we're sort of 80 years later, and we find that antibiotics are sort of losing their edge, and we need to start to reinvestigate all the routes that we have, and phages are an important route that we take. Now, to come back to your question, we sort of track globally between 10 and 15 companies doing similar things um, to what we do, mostly in different indications. So what we already see is that other phage companies, they tend to place a slightly different focus either in terms of technology that they're using or in terms of indication. And so we don't really see them as competitors for now, but rather our peers. I think together we have the responsibility to show and to demonstrate that phage-based pharmaceuticals can make a big difference. And that's the first goal. And so any clinical trial that happens in the space, I think it's good news for everybody else in the field. And um, we need to break through the sound barrier of showing that phage-based pharmaceuticals can have an impact. And the more companies join us in that, the better. Yeah, I would like to understand uh, your uh, area in the industry a little bit better. Uh, are there already any companies in the clinic currently? You have um, two companies that are in the clinic in the U.S. Um, mm-hmm. for uh, complicated uh, urinary tract infections and for, for acne. And um, they are in uh, phase one trials. So it's, it's very early. Uh, you have a two failed clinical trials. So you have two unsuccessful clinical trials with phages in Europe and, and in Asia um, that mostly failed for uh, rather sort of non-drug uh, uh, non-drug topics. So the European one failed due to manufacturing. They weren't able to keep the phages stable. And so when they gave them to the patient, they actually had lost all of their efficacy. So I think that's a, a well-understood um, challenge now, but that's also been solved by the companies now in, in phase one trials in, mm-hmm. in the US. And the one in Asia failed because the etiology of the disease was misunderstood. So there, the assumption was that a certain variant of E. coli was causing diarrhea, and the phages were very successful in killing that variant of E. coli, um, but the disease didn't go away. 
And so the okay. hypothesis was, was not the right one there. So you have these initial clinical efforts. Yeah, and I think we've learned from the ones that have not been that successful. And now my hope is that in, in 2020, 2021, we will see initial trials with phages that show very clear um, efficacy. Um, and I think the beauty about phages that we haven't talked about it before is because phages are incredibly precise. So phages will infect only a specific species of bacteria. And so they are, to us as humans, also incredibly safe. Uh, we don't know of any side effects. All the trials that I've done so far have not shown any side effects. So the, the gold standard for phages is showing efficacy. And uh, that's what needs to be done next for us as an industry. Now, at the end of episode 100, I want to give a brief look out to the future of the podcast. And as I look ahead to 2023, I have set ambitious goals to help grow and expand the podcast further. Here is to at least another 100 episodes. One of the key objectives is to transform the podcast even further into a video show, which will provide a more effective platform for promoting the speakers, their brands, their messages, and their voices. To achieve this goal, I'm actively seeking speakers who can help spread important information in the following areas. Holistic health, preventive medicine, and well-being, first part. Second part is pharma and health tech. The third part is artificial intelligence. The fourth part, climate change. And the fifth part of recordings that I want to do in this year should cover the topics entrepreneurship and investing. So if you know someone who fits into this profile, please reach out to me and make a first contact and a first introduction. The other goals for 2023 include doubling the organic reach on social media, which means growing from, from 9,000 followers and listeners to over 18,000. Creating more media partnerships that we even further increase the outreach for our speakers on the podcast. And of course, to fund and finance the show, increasing the cash flows to support the social media marketing of partners' brands. And I also aim to produce at least 50 more episodes featuring engaging speakers and get their message out into the market. The slogan for this year is that the podcast team helps amplify the speakers' voices and brands. Overall, I'm excited about the opportunities and challenges that lie ahead in 2023. I'm committed to achieve these goals and positively impacting our community. This was episode 100. Thank you for listening and I see you in the next 100 episodes. Did you like this episode? Then please like, comment and share this episode. It helps that the content reaches other people who can benefit from the know-how of the speakers on the show. Have a great day.